Hello, everyone. My name is Tim. Welcome to All Out Coach, your personal podcast that will add energy, excitement, and character to your day, to your business, and to your life. It's my mission to inspire you to stretch yourselves and lift others. Today, I have a special guest who is a leader, a guru in the pharmaceutical industry, a CEO of Delta Point, consultant uh, across different industries, different disciplines, sales, marketing, medical affairs. He's also a former athlete. I've known him for 15 years, and he has one unique ability to leave everyone energized and inspired about the future. Given where our present is today, I thought that he was the perfect guest to talk about the future. And his name is Jerry Acuff. He will talk about how to stay personal and energetic in our impersonal and virtual reality. What a pleasure to have you here, Jerry. Thanks, Tim. Welcome. I appreciate being on. It's great to see you again. Thank you. You too, absolutely. I want to get to know Jerry the person before we get to know about Jerry the consultant and the personal coach. So I'd like to ask you first about what were some of the pivotal moments in your career that led you to become a coach? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great question. You know, and I, I guess I'll get as personal as I need to be. When I was in the seventh grade, I was smoking and drinking. I'd been arrested for shoplifting. Uh, and uh, I walk into Sherwood Junior High in Memphis, Tennessee, the first day of seventh grade and this big tall guy bald guy looks at me and said boy you need to be playing football and i expect you to play football this afternoon at 3 30. this is the first day of school and i was scared to death i called my mother and told her to buy me some cleats she bought me high tops i was the only person who wore high tops and i started playing football and um, that guy's name was bud garrett had a gigantic impact on my life uh, because you know i became a very successful athlete in high school, made first team All-State in Florida uh, in football, got a college football scholarship to the Virginia Military Institute. And that really shaped my life in a million different ways. You know, one is the very, you know, my, my first job in pharma I actually got because my roommate from college introduced me to somebody that worked in the pharma business and in spite of the fact that I wore a brown polyester suit to the interview, the guy hired me. Now, <laughs> I wound up being his boss, you know, one day when I was VP GM of the company. And I asked him, why in the heck did you hire me? I'd have never hired me. And he <laughs> said, I hired you because you went to VMI. And if you went to VMI, which is a military school, mm -hmm. he said, and if you can put up with the rigor and the discipline of that, and I figured you were pretty articulate and you certainly look like a hard worker from your background, I figured you'd be successful. So, so much of my life has been shaped by where I went to college. Um, you know, I'm, I've uh, been married twice. My, uh, my, I have a child by my first marriage who's uh, 44 and doing great, very, very successful in um, the software business. And, uh, and then I've got a 20, year old junior at VMI where I went to school. And uh, my wife and I, second wife and I have been married 20 years. And, um, and she's been hugely pivotal in my success. Because when I got fired from a job in, in 2001, I was VP of sales for a, for a training company and the guy that was my boss 
was, I thought, a friend of mine. And then I got in a disagreement with him and he fired me because I disagreed with him. And I was 51 years old. I had enough money to last me four months and I had a one-year-old. And so I, um, I used my network, which has been hugely important to me. And I wound up getting my first gig at AstraZeneca and started this consulting company, which was 19 years ago. And it was just my wife and I. And I would do, you know, the, she would create, she'd write the proposals, she'd create the presentations and I would go and, and do the work. And of course now, you know, we have, I think 15 employees. We've done business with 17 of the top hundred companies in the world. I wound up as the vice president and general manager of that pharmaceutical company, you know, just starting from a rep with a degree in English, uh, which I guess qualifies you to run a drug company. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, started this business and we've been in business 19 years, uh, then done business with 17 of the top hundred, you know, companies in the world. I've written four best-selling books, uh, three of them on relationship building and one on uh, sales excellence. And, you know, I've been to the White House to talk about healthcare reform. I mean, I've lived a very blessed life, uh, but all of it related to the fact that, you know, I was an athlete who got an education which my parents could not afford. And, uh, and then the network that ultimately came out of that uh, spawned me getting not only the job in pharma, but getting my first job as a consultant. Now, the other thing that's interesting about, um, about my consulting career, I can, I can trace, we've probably done $90 million in consulting in the last 19 years, if I had to, you know, just add them all up. I can trace 70% of that to two people. Two relationships. Yes. Wow. But you see what happens is they've introduced me to somebody else who's introduced me to somebody else who's introduced. So if I did like a genealogy tree, right. Um, it's amazing how much impact these two people had. One of them used to work for me and he was in my sales operations group. And the other one actually I hired as a rep who wound up as the president of AstraZeneca in China. And he was the first person to hire me, you know, when I started the business. So yeah. my life has been, um, charmed by the fact that I understood at a very early age that relationships mattered and that you should treat everybody like they're important because they are. That's why all this social injustice bothers me a lot because, you know, the truth is we've got, you know, multiple camps of people who are far too intolerant, far too closed minded. And my belief is you treat everybody like they're important because they are, and it doesn't matter any, I don't care what they believe. I don't care what they do. As long as they're not, you know, a violent criminal, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to treat them like they're the president of a company. Yeah. So that's basically me. I've got, like I said, two children. I got a wife that's you know, been my rock. I mean, when I first started this business, this is a funny story. Now my wife is, uh, she's, she's very healthy oriented and she's very frugal uh, but not ridiculously cheap. She just, she just, you know, wise with money, which is one of the reasons why she's our chief financial officer. Yep. But when I did my very first project, and I think I charged the client $75,000. The next project came in was identical. She said, why are you charging 75,000? And so I gave her my reasoning. She said, why don't you charge 90? I said, they're not going to pay 90. She said, well, if they don't, then you can go back to 75. And so I did 90 and nobody said anything. And then the next one came in, she said, let's try 120. And then the next one came in, she said, let's do 150. 
and 150 is where we ended up. Now, none of that I'd have had enough sense to do. <laughs> right. So my wife has been, you know, critical uh, in, in, in my business and has been a huge asset, uh, you know, to me. And she's, she's great at giving advice and, and she likes to do that. Um, but, you know, she's been a huge part of my success. But yeah. I will tell you, you know, I tell people all the time, my company is successful because of the people that work there, not because of me. I mean, I got the thing started, but when you bring on people in your company, which I have, and you treat them like family and you love them, they, and then they fall in love with you and what you're doing. They believe in what you're doing. And, and by the way, I would say 90% of our employees were former clients. So and they know what we do and they like what we do and they want to do what we do. But when you bring people like that, they just made my company so much better. And, you know, I'm smart enough to know that I have my limits. Uh, you know, I have, a, I have a president of the company, a guy named Matt Murphy. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I, when, when I decided to, to step down as president two years ago, Matt was the easy choice. My wife said, well, why'd you choose Matt? And I said, I'll tell you why. I said, I've had 100 arguments with Matt. And I've lost 99 times. <laughs> Now that tells me he's the person I want running my company. I want somebody who does not think like me. Yeah. And it's been a gigantic blessing to me. So that's sort of me personally and me. Now, you know, very, my wife and I are both philanthropic. Uh, we donate an out of scholarship. We do donate a scholarship to our college. She donates money to her college. She's very involved in the, in the, um, in the church. She's on the parish council. Um, you know, and we, we believe that, you know, that, that giving doesn't cost, it pays. And so I believe that, you know, one of the, one of the universal truths is when you give, you get. Yeah. And so we're, we're big believers in giving. You know, I follow coaches, but you are a coach who lives, you know, who walks the talk, who is right. genuine, who I think stretches others, but also recognizes others as well. And who I think personifies how others, other people, also sometimes push us to stretch ourselves as well. Just like those examples you just talked about, your wife and other, your colleagues, your, your CEO. But you know, the other thing that happened to me when I got hired into the pharmaceutical business, the first 14 years I was in, and I worked for the same company for 20 years. I only worked for one company. But the first 14 years that I was in, before I went to the home office, uh, the first 14 years I had three supervisors. And all three of them were the best coaches in the world. Now, what was fascinating about all three of them is one of them, who was the middle boss I had, he actually had trained the other two. Mm -hmm. And so when somebody asked me, who's the greatest leader you ever worked for, while the last one I worked for had the biggest impact on my life, I would say Gene Vesna, mm -hmm. who was my regional manager when I was a rep. And then when I became a DM, he was also my boss. He taught those other two how to be great leaders. And if it weren't for Gene, then I, Don wouldn't have been as great as he were. Jim wouldn't have been as great as he were. And, and I can tell you that so much of what I have, you know, espoused, learned, done, emanates from the, the powerful presence of these three people who really cared about you as a human being. Right. And so that I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for the people I work with and the people that I work for. Yeah. 
they were not just your manager, but they were also your coach and your mentor, right? Who developed not your just technical skills, but those non-technical kind of life skills. And yeah, and they and they gave you they gave you room to hang yourself because they wanted you to learn. I mean, I'll never forget the first person I hired when I was a manager. My boss told me not to hire him. And I said, he said, why? And I said, I said why? He said, because he flunked the test. You got you to you pass this test. And we've never hired anybody who's flunked the test. I said, the test is wrong. He said, how many people have you hired? I said, no. <laughs> he said, well, and you want to go against the grain? I said, I do, Gene, and, I, and I'm vehement about this. So he said, okay, you hire the guy then. And I mean, I, that takes a guy with a lot of um, confidence in you. Yeah. Now, two years later, that guy was the number one rep in the country. And he's been one of my closest friends for since 1981. Yeah. Uh, and it's probably the best pharmaceutical person I ever met in my life. But yeah. my boss told me not to hire him, but then let me hire him. Right. And... Um, and the same thing with the second one. For the second one I hired after he'd been with me for six weeks, my same boss told me, I think you got to fire this guy. And I said, why? And he said, well, he's having trouble with the language. I mean, he can't say pseudomonas. I said, hell, I can teach him pseudomonas. I said, let me tell you what I can't teach him. I can't teach him to work 100 hours a week, which is what this guy does. And if I believe in effort, which I do, I bet this guy's going to be wildly successful. Two years later, he's number one in the country. Yeah. So, but my point is the lessons that Gene taught me were believe in your people, give them a chance to make their own mistakes and try not to, to, you know, influence them if you have confidence in them. And, you know, I, I, we hired in our company, we hired a senior level person. And when my, you know, VPs came to me and said, do you want to interview her? And I said, no, if y'all like her, she's fine by me. And I never interviewed her. And this is a senior level executive committee, you know, person. But I said, look, if y'all like her, it'd be stupid for me to interview her. I mean, if you like her, she got to be good. And so, and I will tell you, she's been phenomenal, phenomenal. So I learned that from those three, three bosses. I learned that those are the kinds of decisions you make. You hire people that are really good and you allow them to use their brain. Yeah. And if you don't allow them to use their brain, you're going to make a huge mistake. Yeah. It sounds you think like you've got the only brain you're in trouble. Yeah. Mine's really small. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you've had uh, incredible mentors and you've, uh, and you've yes. been a, an incredible mentor to many others and they're, they're fortunate, including myself, by the way, Jerry. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, as your mentee, um, even, <laughs> even as I am a coach as well to others. So, um, uh, <clears throat> well, I have my, I have my own coaches. I mean, one of them is a, you know, 45 year old ex CIA agent, um, you know, and, um, and one of them is the president of my company. I mean, I, I call him and ask him, what do you think we should do? What do you think I should do? How should I handle this? I see him as a, he says, even though he's, you know, technically I'm his boss, I see him as my partner and my coach. I don't, I think everybody needs a coach. Everybody. And I think for everybody in life who wants to be successful, they can find somebody that'll help them. But you got to ask them because they're not going to say, you know, I bet old Tim wants a coach. The only way you're ever going to find a coach is to ask to ask somebody. And if you ask somebody and they don't do it, then you learn they're probably a jerk, which means you didn't really want them anyway. <laughs> or they'll say yes and they'll help you. 
Yeah. And mentorship I just believe, you know, if you want to get, you got to ask. You know, as I reflect about the things that I've learned, right, about work, about life, uh, a lot of it has to do with the kinds of mentors I've had and the time when they actually told me some of those pearls. Yes. Would you say that the, the pace of our career development, our personal development also depends on uh, the mentors that we have? Oh, I, I, well, first place, if you, if you read The Inner Game of Selling by Ron Willingham or you read The People Principle by Ron Willingham and you, and you grasp his concept of the three dimensions of human performance, which he basically created as a result of, of, of working with uh, Maxwell Maltz, who wrote Psycho-Cybernetics, what you'll, what you'll uncover is that the key to all growth and development is number one, self-awareness. Most of us don't have great self-awareness because we don't have people sharing with us views that we can't see. And so, that, so my belief is that the catalyst for, for significant growth and development is almost always a good coach. Yeah. I'll give you an example. When I was 37, my life's dream, they got to understand, you know, I came from a family where my parents were married nine times. My dad was bankrupt three times. You know, and my stepfather pulled a gun on me twice. Well, you know, I grew up in a uh, you know very broken uh, family, and, and 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 we didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so my life's dream at 37 was to be a regional manager for a pharmaceutical company. And I figured, hey, if I could make that by the time I'm 40, and then do that the rest of my life, I'd have it made. Well, when I was 37, I got the opportunity to to uh, to interview for a regional manager's job. And there was only two candidates, me and my last boss. And either he would be working for me or I would be working for him. And so anyway, he gets the job, not me. Mm-hmm. Now, it's the best thing that ever happened to me because the day he got the job, Tim, he calls me. He lived in Tampa, still does. His name is Don Cutcliffe. Uh, had as big an influence on my life as anybody. And he comes to me and he tells me this. He said, Jerry, you should have got this job, not me. He said, you're far more qualified to do this than I am, but they didn't give it to you. They gave it to me and I ain't giving it back. Uh, He said, but let me tell you this. This job is not big enough for you. You need to be running our company. And I promise you tonight, I will not stop advocating on your behalf until you're running our company. And five years later, I was running the company. But you see what he did, Tim? He changed my view of me. See, my view of me was I'm a regional manager. That's my self-image. What he forced me to think about was, could I actually go to New Jersey, compete with these people and wound up in a significant role, which I did. And, and I wound up as vice president general manager of a, you know, $650 million pharmaceutical company. None of that happens without him. And so the answer to your question is, if you want to experience exponential or significant growth and development, you got to get a great mentor who sees in you what you do not see in yourself yeah there are times when you think back and you say to yourself i wish i had a mentor at that time i could have seen myself from a different perspective you know on all out coach jerry i have a video where i talk about why all of us need uh, coaches and in fact multiple coaches yes. maybe two or three different coaches for, because of how diversified our world is becoming yes skills are, and, and i need to get a coach to explain to me my 20 year old whatever whatever generation he is i don't understand it <laughs> i looked over your website again delta point so it used to be called delta point uh, back when i was at astrazeneca and when we knew each other 
And uh, I'll just mention to the listeners that it's just rich and dense with success stories, similar to the ones you just shared. Uh, success stories, as well as practical tips, references, books, uh, where you help marketing teams to launch products, a lot of corporations. Well, I want to ask you, what are some of the most trending problems that you're asked recently to resolve uh, from these large industry, uh, large companies? Well, they fall into three different categories. Uh, number one, <clears throat> a lot of companies ask us to help them take a brand and grow share. Now, it's either because they're getting a new competitor or they think that they're, they're leaving, you know, market share on the table and don't, haven't figured out internally how to do it. And we've done 100, I think, in 78 of those uh, in the 19 years that we've been involved. We did 20 of them at Merck. Um, we, I think we did 17 of them at AstraZeneca. <clears throat> and so we get hired to help them figure out how do you sell more of this stuff. And so we spend lots of time, lots of effort, lots of energy trying to understand the product, the therapeutic category, et cetera. Now, we, don't, we also have done that for, you know, companies that are not pharma. I mean, we've done it for big companies like Hertz. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big part of our business. The second part is, you know, new companies um, or existing companies who want to have a customer-focused approach. They will ask us to create their selling approach and then their coaching approach. And we do that for probably, that's probably 25% of our business. And then the rest of it is workshops where people have an individual issue. The, 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 two, the three biggest ones are, you know, how do we become more interesting so we can get more people to listen? Uh, the second one is how do we ask better questions? Uh, because regardless of whether you're an MSL or whether you're, you know, um, well, even if you're a physician, the, the quality of the questions you ask determines the quality of the care you can get. And then the last one is, uh, you know, how do you actually ask for commitments? Now, we also do a lot of work on relationship building because I've written three books on that. Yep. The Relationship and, Edge is one of them, right? That I remember. The Relationship, relationship Edge, edge. Yeah. yeah. But And it, it's all the same version of the same book with just sort of some new material, but, mm -hmm. but a lot of people really don't know how to build a network. They don't know how to leverage a network. Uh, and they certainly don't know how to build a relationship with somebody that they don't naturally connect with. And so the whole purpose of the relationship edge, I mean, you and I don't need a book to build a relationship with each other. We naturally connect, yeah. but there's probably 75% of the people that you and I interact with that we don't naturally connect with. And if we could naturally connect with them, it'd probably be a good thing. So I wrote the books to teach people how do you connect with people you don't naturally connect with, and then how do you maintain those relationships, how do you sustain those, and then how do you leverage them? Because leveraging relationships is probably one of the things that most people really don't understand how to do right. Mm -hmm. um, they know how to do it, but Jerry's view of the world is if you do it the wrong way, it, it's counterproductive. So if I say, hey, Tim, do you know John Smith? You're going to say yes. I'm going to say, will you introduce me? Well, now I've put you on the spot. But if I say, hey, Tim, how well do you know John Smith, if at all? Right. And you say, oh, actually, I, I know him pretty well. And then I say, well, how comfortable would you be introducing me? 
requires yeah, follow-up questions. Great. It's always that depth, that added dimension and depth that you always brought, uh, Jerry, just, just like in that, that example alone. Yeah, but I think it's, a, to me, everybody needs to learn how to ask that question because yeah. there are people that are in your, in, in your circle that know people that you need to know. But they are not mind readers, so they don't know who you need to know. I was trying to see a, a physician uh, when I was back at DM in Alabama, and you know, it was he was in charge of Medicaid, and he wouldn't see me, and he wouldn't see my rep. And so I just asked everybody I knew, "How well do you know this guy, if at all?" And well, the tenth person I asked said, "I know him really well. How comfortable would you be introducing me?" He said, "Let's call him right now." Mm -hmm. So literally, I'm standing in this OBGYN's office. He calls this you know, family practitioner who's 100 miles away and said, hey, I want you to talk to this uh, pharma guy. And let me just tell you right now, he's different. He's not like the rest of them. Yep. And um, so I got on the phone with the guy and he said, hey, if, if Ron says you're okay, you're okay, when can you come up here? I said, how about tomorrow? I went up there the next day and by the time I left, I had all of his pre-printed orders. Mm -hmm. And he is a lifelong friend of mine now. Yeah. So my point is, if you know how to, to leverage relationships and you know how to find people, like I wanted to meet the basketball coach at Arizona State because my hobby is mentoring college basketball coaches. Right. And I wanted to meet the coach at Arizona State when I, when I you know, because you know, I have a home in Phoenix. Yep. And this guy is the fourth youngest coach in the history of college basketball to 400 victories. And I didn't know him, but I wanted to know him because I love college basketball. And so I just asked everybody I knew, how well do you know Herb Sendak, if at all? And finally, the 10th person said, I know him really well. You want to meet him? And I said, yeah. He said, well, let's have breakfast next week. So I had breakfast with Herb, and this has been 11 years ago. And um, now, if, if you do that, you better make dang sure that you have a reason for wanting to meet with him. Because if they don't ask you why you want to meet with him, they're thinking, why does this person want to meet with me? So sure enough, Herb is a very straight shooter. And he says, so what, what, what do you want from me? And I said, I don't want anything from you. I said, I got enough money to buy my own tickets. I don't even like your t-shirt, so I, I wouldn't want one of those. Um, I said, let me tell you what I want. I said, I want the opportunity to get in front of your 15 basketball players. And I want to teach them two things that I'll guarantee you, you're not teaching them and your school's not teaching them, but it's critical to their life success. Mm -hmm. He said, well, what's that? And I said, how do you set and achieve stretch goals? How do you do extraordinary things? And how do you build a network of people so you'll always have a job? I said, so let me ask you this question. You got 15 people in that locker room. How many of those people are going to be able to make their living playing basketball and never do anything else? He said, none. I said, so every single one of them sooner or later are going to need a job. Well, I said, well, if you don't have a network, you ain't getting a job. So he said, well, look, could you talk to them tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could. Now, what I love about this story, because Herb is a close friend of mine, uh, if you go on jerryacuff.com, yeah. There's actually a minute and nine second video of Herb talking about our relationship and how much he values our relationship. And what I try and get people to understand is that if you know how to do this, you can take someone who's, who you have no relationship with to someone you have a really valuable relationship with if your intent is good and you can add value to it. You know, the biggest thing that we encounter is companies are too product focused. Mm -hmm. or they're too sales focused. They're not customer focused. I'm a big believer that you have to think like the customer. And um, 
you know, I always say to sell Jane Brown what Jane Brown buys, you have to see the world through Jane Brown's eyes. Yep. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why one of my most valuable, uh, you know, colleagues is a physician. And so when I'm creating sales language for clients, he edits a hundred percent of them. Why? Cause he's a doctor. And if I say, you know, patients with metastatic breast cancer, uh, I mean, if I say the, 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 you know, the metastatic breast cancer patient, he'll change it to the patient with metastatic breast cancer. Right. Because that's how the physicians talk. And so, I mean, he's, he's one of the most valuable resources I have, but it's because I understand that the only way I'm going to get through to people is to think like they do. Now, the other thing I've, that I've learned is that the vast majority of people in our industry and whether it's sales or marketing, they don't ask very good questions. They don't ask the kind of thought provoking questions that gets the customer to see that maybe there's a fit for our product that they haven't thought of before. Mm-hmm. And so, and if you, and if you read, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's only two great books in, in that I've read about questions. One's called uh, questions that sell by a guy named Paul Cherry. He's yep. a friend of mine and I'm actually, you know, in version two, I'm actually on the back cover of that book. Okay. Um, and and I don't endorse it because I'm on the back cover. I endorse it because when I read it, the first book, I said, this is fabulous. And then then, our, then the other one is Spin Selling. Problem with both of those books, and, and Paul would acknowledge this, they don't teach you how to create your own question. Mm-hmm. They give you lots of examples of situations and questions you could ask. Mm-hmm. What we teach people is how do you actually sit in a Panera Bread or Starbucks yeah. and create a question for whoever you're going to call on? whether that's me calling on a senior executive in a pharma company or whether that's a sales rep calling on a doctor or whether that's, you know, somebody from Hertz out calling on a body shop trying to get their business. Yeah. How do you actually create the question so that the person wants to answer and answer truthfully? And there's a dearth of that um, in, in our industry. And then the other problem I think is that a lot of the senior and I, I probably get shot for saying this, but it's true. Um, a lot of the senior salespeople are disconnected from the customer. And so they have this belief that we'd sell more if we challenged the customer. Mm-hmm. Now, I got to tell you, you take the average pharmaceutical sales force, I'd be betting that certainly half or more to have a liberal arts degree like I do. Now, if you think I, with a bachelor's degree in English and a 2.18 GPA, is gonna go challenge a physician, you're out of your mind. <laughs> because I'm way smarter than that. Now, can I, can, I, can I challenge their thinking by asking good questions? The answer to that is you damn right I can. Can I get them to extend what they're thinking by asking something as simple as say more about that. Can you educate me a little bit more on that last point that you brought up? Um, But most people, you know, they just come in and try and ram the stuff down your throat. And this is, you know, we're the greatest, 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 greatest. And, you know, if I, if I were a customer, I get tired of you telling me how great you were. I mean, I tell, you know, I tell my clients, especially in competitive markets, the worst thing you can do is knock your competition. What you have to do is to say, look, both of these products are great. The question is, if the products are similar, but they're not the same, then the question becomes, what are the differences and when do they matter? And I think a lot of, another thing that we see, and this would be the only thing I would add to it, is, is some companies are great at paying attention to culture, 
and, and some of our clients are not. And so if you have a very sort of, you know, dictatorial, uh, you know, hierarchical culture, it's not going to be nearly successful if you create a family environment. And I can tell you, you know, there's, there's a half a dozen great companies, I mean, really great companies that create great culture. And the culture, what, what the culture does is that, number one, it frees people to be themselves. The second thing it does is it attracts good people. We got clients who have lousy cultures. And, you know, and now if I encounter somebody with a bad culture, then I try and tell them, you got a culture issue. And so if you're trying to get me to be the answer to your problems, I got to tell you, I'm only part of the, the answer. You got you to deal with the culture because the culture has too much negativity. You know, Malt said in his book, Psycho-Cybernetics, that the most negative energy you can apply towards the attainment of a goal is the pressure you put on yourself to achieve the goal. And so if you're putting pressure on people, all you're doing is creating negative energy. And far too many companies do that. Jerry, one of the reasons why uh, I called my coaching business all-out coach rather than all-in, right, which is the trending word, as I right. like to say, among many others, is because of that kind of all-in episode, episodic kind of uh, pressure environment that you know we've all been through, probably yeah. we, we were familiar with, which doesn't really teach you how to grow over time and how to apply a different kind of behavior, but just risking something and then just putting too much pressure. And with the assumption being that just by applying more pressure, you'll improve performance, which doesn't, doesn't happen. Uh, unfortunately, and as your experience shows, what I, I gathered from some of your responses that what's missing from our leadership today, whether it be in the pharmaceutical industry or others is our customer centricity, right? Being just yes. personal, more personal in our approaches, asking the right questions, uh, and also our competitive edge, our vision of what that competition looks like, uh, right. our culture culture and competition respond your remarks about the questions and how important they are uh, reminded me also of a recent forum that i attended called the leadership business forum uh in lincoln center in the new york city yeah huge you know huge theater as you know right and hal gregerson who is the director of the mit innovation center was the speaker and he was promoting his new book the questions are the answer but what struck me about that whole dynamic that he created very quickly and very successfully was that he asked everyone in this, in this room, right, in this theater, about 2,000 people, to partner up with their, their neighbor in the next seat and uh, just tell, tell each other, take, take turns and tell each other about a problem that they're facing. Have the other person listen for a minute and then just write down questions without any answers. Just write down question after question, like just set of questions and then present those questions to the person. And then they took turns. And it was, I found it like it was extremely interactive and he was able to just connect such a large group of people in such a huge room. Right. So, uh, yeah. So question, and I'm using that actually, Jerry, in my, in some of my coaching with my private clients as well, the people who I mentor. The terrific idea, because, you know, too often, especially, you know, people in, in the persuasion business, they, you know, they ask a question and as soon as the customer answers, they want to respond. Yeah. When they really haven't identified what did the person mean by what they said. Mm -hmm. Usually you got to dig to really find out what's at the sort of bottom of this issue.
And that's why this exercise I think was so powerful because, you know, you, you can make an instantaneous diagnosis and be wrong about 95% of the time. But if you dig deeper and try and find, find out, okay, you know, what else is really going on here? Uh, but one of the things that's fascinating is that we, I think the studies show that we lose, we start losing our curiosity at a very early age. You know, children are curious as heck, you know, mama, what's this? Mama, what's that? Daddy, what's this? Daddy, what's that? You know, by the time you're a teen, you, you lost your curiosity. The, the truth is, if you're going to be a great leader, you need to re-energize your curiosity. Try and understand, uh, you know, exactly why people do what they do, because there's a reason why they do what they do. And if you really understand that reason, then you got a better shot at trying to deal with it or understanding that you can't deal with it. Yeah. What would you say the current generation of leaders is doing better or what could they learn from previous generations of leaders? Well, first place, the, the, the current generation of leaders, I think, um, certainly are much more technolo technologically savvy than, than we are. And I think that that, is, that gives them an edge. Uh, I think they think differently than we do um, because, you know, it's, technology has been such an important part of their life. I think that, you know, it's like everything else, your, your, your uh, strength is also often your Achilles heel. And so, you know, what comes with that is an over-reliance on technology, when in, in reality, there's nothing probably more powerful than a live interaction like we're having. I think they're more social conscious than we were and not to say that we weren't but i think it's a it's a you know because of i think all of the changes in the demographics of our yeah. society that they're more socially conscious um and i think that's a good thing um i, th I think another thing is that i think they're also they're really smart i mean they're really smart i mean you got more college educated kids in the younger generation than you do in our generation and so you got a bunch of really smart people and, and I think they are uh, intellectually motivated to learn more and they are not opposed to learning from people with significantly different ages and more experienced than them, which I find very compelling. Um, I mean, the young, younger people that I've hired uh, who, you know, have reached leadership position. I mean, one of, the, one of the people that mentors me is a guy who's an expert in culture. His name is Jay Duran. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he's way too smart for me. I mean, I listen to him and I say, okay, I probably get about 15% of this stuff because Jay is so dang smart. Mm -hmm. um, but he's also a person who is dying to learn from people with more experience than him. And so I think that there, I, what I think is that there's gigantic hope for America because I do believe that if you take a lot of really smart people who have a significant degree of curiosity and a, and, a, and a desire to learn, which I think the vast majority of people who ascend to leadership in this newer generation do, I think what it will create is probably the most successful economy that this country has ever seen over the next five or 10 years. Assuming that they're not, you know, it's sort of messed up by the government, which they have a tendency to do that from time to time. But this is a group of people who will figure out ways to marry technology with good ideas now it'll create problems too because the, the the acceleration of their the change that these people envision will make things that might have been you know um uh, 
obsolescent in 10 years, they'll be obsolescent in three. Mm. And so, and you're already seeing that. Yeah. Um, the pace is just, I, I, I mean, for me, it's, it's an incredibly encouraging thing when I meet these young people that are the new, you know, uh, generation of leaders. And when I meet them, they are, uh, and I go, you know, I teach at a college twice a year. Uh, last year I taught also at the Batten School of Leadership at the University of Virginia. And I like teaching the schools that I couldn't get into. Um, and I could never have gotten into UVA. Um, and I've taught at Dartmouth. Couldn't have gotten in there either. But I am, I am incredibly energized by uh, the people that, that I'm surrounded by. They're people with incredible uh, achievement drive, incredible energy. Uh, they're not afraid to question. They're not afraid to challenge, but, that, but they're eager to learn. And so I think they are, I think, they're, I think they're probably freer than we were because we all grew up in this sort of military-like hierarchical society yeah. where, you know, you did what you were told. Do you think, though, that they're a little bit impatient, more impatient than previous generations? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, because I think fast food started that. You know, now if you, if you can't get it in 13 seconds, I mean, if the internet, my God, the internet's slow. It's taken me 14 seconds to get, you know, Google to download, you know, a search. Oh, there's no question it makes them impatient. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the smart ones mature, you know, start maturing in their late 20s and early 30s, and they start understanding that people skills really matter yeah. and patience really matters and learning from others really matters. And when you get that combination, you've got somebody who's going to be wildly successful way younger than I was when I was successful. Yeah, that's a great outlook for the future. How do you think the medical affairs or pharmaceutical industry will transform in the next five years? If you could make a prediction, do you see it's going to be radically different? Well, I think the, I think the big differences is there there'll be there continue to be a uh, there'll be there'll be less of a there'll be less focus on primary care, more focus on rare disease and oncology, uh, and the specialties. You know, um, and because I, I think that's where the the research dollars are going. You know, for lack of a term, the unmet. I mean, look, you know, HDL uh, and LDL, we got those covered, right? I mean, right. if you you're taking 20 milligrams of resuvastatin like I am, you ain't got any LDL problems, right? Um, and I don't think we're going to find, you know, anything that's a heck of a lot better than that. And I think pharma companies understand that. I think what they realize is that there's still some diseases uh, that are, that need to be conquered. Alzheimer's is one of them. Now, you know, we had an Alzheimer's drug 25 years ago, and I came to the conclusion then, this is the, this is God's way of telling you, you ain't getting out of here alive. Um, and, and I think cancer is probably the same way, mm -hmm. but so I think it's more specialty. I think you're going to have more sales reps who perform like an MSL. My belief is, and I've always believed this, the very best reps I've ever worked with had the knowledge uh, acumen about their product in a the therapeutic category that a good MSL did. Maybe not equal, but dadgum close. And your best MSLs, were people who also understood the power of sharing their beliefs, not selling anything, because MSL should never sell, but, but all MSL should do is share what they believe and what they know about the product, but getting really good at that by asking good questions, being curious with a customer is a, is a skill that many of the great reps have learned. And so 
but I always thought, you know, honestly, you know, when, when, um, uh, back when Merck bought the, uh, the, the PBM or, or I forget what it was. It was like 20, it was, it was back in the, in the early nineties. Right. Mm -hmm. I actually thought what Merck figured out was that you didn't need sales reps anymore. That what you could do is you could put a whole bunch of MSLs in a building and have them contact your customers and your customers would find that more compelling. So I think the role of MSLs, which I think is a little sad because I think you're seeing fewer MSLs today than you did before. But I think a lot of that is because there's less emphasis on primary care and there's not as much need. But I still think that the MSL role may be the most important role in pharma from a commercial point of view, even though they're not commercial, they're in a medical affairs group, but because they are the answer to many questions that sales reps can't answer, but they can answer because they have, you know, exquisite knowledge and understanding of the data and they know the appropriate use of the drug. Uh, and I, and I think that, you know, having that knowledge is, um, I don't know. I, and I think it's, it's, it's invaluable. Yeah, Jerry, when I mentor early career MSLs, those are who are trying to become MSLs, I uh, tell them how important it is to have a very close relationship with their field commercial organization because I, I just explain to them that we often forget, unfortunately, that both the sales, the field sales and the field medical or MSLs are ultimately partners in the continuum of care and the right. continuum of patient access to medication and providers access to the right medication to right. patients. I often consider MSLs as being somewhat of drums, you know, in that song of science and, you know, if you will, and the sales reps as kind of the vocalists who everyone knows about. And, and I think that, you know, medical affairs could assume more responsibilities and more leadership in the future in the next five years. And, in turning around the, the trust, the perception that the public has for our industry uh, as well. Uh, right. I'm hopeful that that can happen, you know, in, in the future. Um, well, listen, I, you know, I've worked with lots of MSL groups. One of the things that's funny is, you know, an MSL in my mind has to have the right belief about what they do. Mm -hmm. So now I've never been an MSL, but I've done lots of work with them. And what I tell them is that, look, first place I ask them, what do you think your job is? Now, too often, the answer is disseminate information. Mm -hmm. And I say, you do know we could do that with a postcard. Yeah. And so that's not your job. And nowadays with technology, that becomes pretty easy, right? To disseminate data. Yeah, but I said, my, my belief is that your job is to share what you believe, what you, what you personally believe about the product based on everything that you've learned. And if you simply share what you believe, the customer can believe it or not. It doesn't matter. It's what you believe based on all the studying that you've done and all the education that you've had about, you know, where this product makes sense, where it doesn't make sense. You know, I, I used to spend a lot of time when I was, you know, a district manager telling physicians where not to use my product. And when I, when I teach people that now, you know, and I do it in every pr presentation I give to a client, tell the customer where not to use the product. Tell the customer where the adverse reactions are. Tell them that if, you know, it's, if, if potentially you're going to get ONJ, tell them how they actually counsel that patient or how they, or they make, don't, don't select that patient. Yeah. I want to make sure that they know everything because I want them to only give this to the people that ought to be on the drug. And the answer to that is usually what's in the label yeah. or what the physician believes 
is not in the label, but they feel is an okay practice, which happens probably more in oncology than it does anywhere else. Uh, I mean, some of my best customers and my biggest accomplishments on the medical side, I owe to this day, Jerry, to a lot of those great personal relationship minded kind of reps that, that, that inspired me, you know, back in the day when I was at AstraZeneca, when I started out, uh, Jerry. So, but you know, when I was a, when I was running a company, I had a hospital in Pittsburgh call me big hospital, tell me that, that uh, neurosurgeons were using our product for surgical prophylaxis. And our product was a third generation cephalosporin. And of course, you know, the, 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 the standard of care in, in that kind of surgery is the first generation. Mm-hmm. And so the pharmacist, I was a friend of mine, he called me, he said, how do I stop this? And I said, is there any way you can get all of your neurosurgeons in a, in a room at one time? He said, yeah. I said, well, then I'll fly over there and ask them not to use the product. I mean, I run the company. I'm the one who's responsible for the P&L. I'll tell you now what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you, I consulted with our medical affairs people because I really wanted to understand whether this was an appropriate use of our product or not. My medical people tell me, and I run the company, that this is not what we would believe is that what standard of care is a first generation cephalosporin. So I'm coming here today to ask you, please don't use my product that way. That's how strongly I believed in appropriate care. Jerry, I know as the listeners are getting to know you uh, as the person, as Jerry, the consultant for a lot of corporations and and, uh, in the pharmaceutical industry and, and beyond, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about Jerry, the coach, the personal coach and mentor as well. Sure. You mentioned sales. You have a lot of experience leading companies' sales teams. How do you teach them to maintain their energy level, which is such a hot, hot topic these days in the coaching industry? Because they need to maintain an important level of significant level of energy throughout the day, right? In order to uh, evoke those emotions and be relevant to the physicians. How do you, how do you, what are some tips that you could share with us? Well, I think there's, you know, there's, there's several things I would point to. First thing that I find is that the vast majority of people who struggle with energy and sales have the wrong definition of selling. And so, you know, when I talk to sales leaders, I say, okay, you got 50 salespeople. How many definitions of selling do you think you have? And they'll say 50. And I said, do you think that's good? And I said, I would tell you that's not good. And it's not good for this reason. Your beliefs drive your behavior. So I want to be clear about what selling is. Now, I stole this definition from a guy named Fred Herman. Mm-hmm. But he said, selling is teaching. In every successful sale, some education place takes place. The customer learned something they didn't know before. Secondly, he says, uh, but you got to remember, the very best teachers that you ever had were not people who lectured to you. There were people who made it fun, interactive, asked you questions, made you think. And if great, that's what great salespeople do. He said, the second thing was selling is finding out what people want and helping them get it. He said, now there's two things you need to know about that. Number one, that most people don't know what they want, but they think they do. And then the second thing is, uh, if what they want, we don't have, we have no right to sell them what we do have. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's why I, that's why I went to Pittsburgh, because they, you know, I had no right to sell them that. I and 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 I've and I've lived this way my whole life. I mean, I've I've been contacted by people who've asked me to speak, and I have a substantial you know speaking fee, um, and then I have determined after talking to them that I'm not the right person for them. 
that I would suggest somebody else. And I was, and I usually say, are you open to another opinion? And they go, yeah. And I said, well, I, if it were me, if I were you, I'd hire this person. Well, wh why don't you want to do it? I said, I didn't say I didn't want to do it. I'm saying I'm not the right person. I'm not the right. And now, now if you're dying to write me a check, then just do that. But, but if you really want quality, you need this person, not me. And so if you live by that philosophy, you have all the energy in the world because all you do is realize what's my job. My job is finding people who, who actually want what I'm selling. They may not know it's yet, but, but I'm getting paid to ascertain whether they do want it or not by the kinds of questions that I ask them and how prepared I am. So that's the first thing. The mm -hmm. second thing is I need to have the right intent. Now intent this is actually the whole chapter of this in my book, stop acting like a seller, start thinking like a buyer. Intent in my mind is everything. Intent is my mindset at the time of a specific action. That's the dictionary definition. Well, my intent when I go and interact with someone is never to sell them ever. It's to find out if my product or service is a fit for what they're looking for. And if it is, then, and it makes sense for them, they'll buy. Uh, that creates all kinds of energy for me because it says, I'm not out chasing people and, and worried about somebody telling me no. I'm, no doesn't bother me. No means I'm not a good fit. Yeah. And frankly, I'm as likely to tell you that I'm not a good fit as you, know, you are to come to that conclusion. Because if I'm not, I'm gonna tell you. Frankly, my business is built on my reputation, my company's reputation. We don't take clients that we can't help. So we do our own due diligence up front to find out, can I actually help these people? And if I can help them, then I'm going to tell them that I can help them. I'm going to make it clear that we can help them, but it's still going to be their decision. And then I think the third thing is, is really important is what's called achievement drive. Mm -hmm. And achievement drive is the energy released toward the attainment of a goal. And I think, you know, one of the things that keeps people energized and, and, and keeps people from being energized is either having a goal or not having a goal. And, you know, you can't hit a target you don't have, but if you have a target and it's really, really important for you to attain that goal, then you'll exert all the energy you need to achieve that goal. And so I think it starts with having the right definition of selling. I think secondly is you have to have what I call pure intent. Your intent has to be, I intend to be good at my job. And I think the last thing I would say is that great salespeople look at themselves as not just having a career, but having a responsibility. So when I'm, when I'm talking to any of my clients about a product that, that I think is not being used the way it needs to be used, I'm not thinking about the company. I'm thinking about the patients that ought to be getting this drug that aren't and how, because we're not better at our job, we're not getting them that opportunity. Yeah, I'm I think so that's glad you said that. a really important thing. And I think that's why the MSL position is so important because yeah. you, you actually fulfill opportunities that people you'll never see you could be sitting next to them in the waiting room and you could have changed their life and you'll never know it but but you did because you had that conversation to get that physician to think about a patient so when people ask me what do i do for a living i tell them very simply here's what i do i try and get i try and help my clients create conversations with customers that get them to think about our product where they're not thinking about it now, but if they did think about it, the patient would be better off. Mm -hmm. That's not, now, how much pressure is that? 
So the, the, one of the things I write about in my book is the less you care about the sale, the more you sell. Yeah. I don't care about the sale. You know, thinking back to my early days at AZ, as I told you the story before, Jerry, when I got up there once on a large meeting, cross-functional meeting with everyone from sales, everyone from medical, and we had an exercise. I was, uh, happened to be the spokesperson for my team and uh, got up there and I, uh, I actually um, used this quote that I had read by Confucius. So the superior man is the one who knows what is right, while the inferior man is the one who knows what will sell. Right. And, uh, you know, and because I knew that best sales reps do not sell, they go a, a level beyond or uh, they, they assume an extra response, an added responsibility of finding out, of following up with questions, identifying the root cause and knowing when to persist and when to look elsewhere. Right. Uh, but you know, my quote, the intent was actually misinterpreted by, right. by a few uh, a few people, you know, in medical, they, they told me, look, there were sales reps in there. But as you and I understand the important point of integrity and understanding ultimately what happens to those patients differentiates those, yeah. those, those champions from others. Well, I guarantee you the salespeople may have taken offense to it, but your compliance people would love it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah, nobody, I, believe it or not, Jerry, uh, the sales reps did not take offense to it as far as I... Uh, oh, well, I'm, well, then, then from what I heard, it was from somebody, some people in medical, but... It may have been someone, someone else. Well, uh, you know, maybe, maybe they're maybe they're a little sensitive about their their role, but I, I believe they're all in the same. We're all in this together to try and get the patient yeah. what whatever is the best therapy for the patient. And if it's our product, great. And if it's not our product, I wouldn't I wouldn't use it. Persuasion. You talked a little bit about energy and those kind of situations where sales reps have to persuade. I know you have a you know you write a lot, you coach a lot about this. What are some tips that you can just preview for us? Uh, in terms of persuading people, particularly today in the COVID environment in which most of the interactions are virtual? Well, I, I think, you know, there's, there's sort of two steps before you can get to persuasion. You know, one is you got to connect with them. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you got to get access to them. And there's actually some, you know, some, some tips that we give our clients about how do you do that, right? The first thing is in, in, in times of adversity, which we certainly, you know, would characterize this as a time of adversity, yeah. you have to demonstrate that you care. And so the first thing that you should say to anybody that you talk to is how are you and your loved ones doing? Yeah. That's a very simple thing to say, but they could tell you that one of their good friends died yesterday. Right. In which case you probably ought to say, I think I should call back. Right. The second thing you need to do is to be respectful of their time and actually ask them how much time do they feel they can commit to this interaction with you today. Most people aren't doing that. Most people are saying, hey, I'd like to talk to, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I'd like to talk to, you know, nurse practitioner Bill or Jill or whatever. Um, we teach people that you've dramatically increased your likelihood that someone will connect with you if you give them the opportunity to say no you give them the opportunity to say, now's not a good time, you know, could you call back here? Um, so I think part of being persuasive is you got to get, you got to have access. Now, to me, um, persuasion is a function of, can I get you to listen? Can I get you to think differently than you're thinking now? Mm -hmm. And if I can get you to listen and think differently, then I, can I get you to act differently? Yep. 
Um, and if all three of those things happen, then I would say I've persuaded you. Now, the problem is there's only two ways that I have found that you actually can get somebody to want to listen to you. One is you have a relationship with them. So if you call me, I'm going to call you back. I'm going to call you back because we have a relationship. And so I don't need you to be compelling. I don't need you to be interesting. I don't need you to be funny. I don't need you to say something that, that engenders curiosity. I just need you to call and say, hey, Jerry, it's Tim. Right. <laughs> and, Dialogue. Uh, right. I, you got my attention, right? Yeah. Now, if you don't have a relationship with somebody, then you need to use the concepts of mystery, surprise, and curiosity. Uh, to get people interested. And this is one of the things that's wrong with emails. I mean, I spent this weekend working on a client's emails and just making I me. Mean, so for example, one of the examples that they had was um, uh, let's schedule an appointment. I said, now think about that in a subject line. Is that going to compel you to want to talk to me? Let's schedule an appointment. Right. Now, if I say, Hey, love to get on your calendar for three or four minutes to discuss something others in your profession have found valuable. I got a way better likelihood of getting you to say yes to that. So I said, number one, if you're going to be persuasive, you got to be interesting and you got to be relevant. So it can't just be interesting. It's got to be relevant. Right. And then you got to ask questions to engender thinking, because if I can't get you to think differently, I'll never get you to act differently. Now, one of the problems that most people have that are trying to persuade is they're trying to use a message or a pitch to persuade when in reality, what you need to persuade people usually is a conversation. Yeah. And a conversation looks like two people talking, mm -hmm. one person talking, one person listening, really listening, one person trying to capture the essence of what this person is saying and making the connection between what you're saying and and, and, and what our product, you know, might offer. And then the third thing is if I can get you to think differently and get you to say, Hey, that makes sense to me. Your, your logic makes sense now based on, and I'll give you a simple example. So I was talking, I was working on a product uh, years ago from Roche and it was an oral cancer drug for uh, breast cancer. And so I called a friend of mine who was a Mayo clinic trained uh, oncologist. And I asked him, I said, uh, I said, Doc, let me ask you a question. I said, tell me what you think about this product. It's called Zalota. And he said, well, it's just oral 5-FU. Now, 5-FU, as most people know anything about oncology, knows it's a, an IV drug that you give to lots of people with cancer. It's a first-line therapy, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so when he said that, I said this. I said, well, what if that weren't the case? And he said, well, you mean it didn't? And I said, well, look, why don't you let me tell you what I've learned about it? And then you tell me whether you still feel that way. So I told him. And when I finished, he said, well, that's not oral 5-FU at all. That's way better than, than IV 5-FU. So I got him to think differently by simply, A, finding out what he thought, and then B, giving him that there's other ways to look at this. So, and let me tell you one of the things I found about physicians in my 46 years in this business, I don't find that many that have a closed mind. I don't find that many that believe they have found the secret to every single disease, every single therapy at all. I think all of them are curious as they can be looking for another edge, another opportunity. And, and then if you can actually share that with them and then ask them to sort of give it a fair trial, 
then you've probably been persuasive. But you got to get them to listen. You got to get them to think differently. You got to get them to act differently. But to get them to think differently, you've got to ask questions. You've got to listen. You got to you got to paraphrase to make sure you understand what they meant by what they said. You got to extend the conversation by saying things like "say more about that." And if you do those things, you can be far more persuasive. Yeah, yeah. I saw a recent video by Adam Grant, which uh, kind of caught my attention, where he uh, worked with some other psychologists, um, and uh, he talked about this uh, phenomenon of burstiness. Bursting is being uh, a, uh, a stimulant for people to collaborate more. And he kind of described a situation where somebody who's working in the United States sends an email to someone who's working in a different time zone somewhere else, like Japan or something like that. And they notice that uh, after they send the email that someone is responding to that email. When they surveyed these people uh, to, to understand what made them more or less likely to collaborate, it wasn't, it wasn't just the, the notion that somebody else was on the other end uh, of, the, of the computer uh, re responding, but the, uh, uh, responding to their email, but it was that they were working at the same time on the same kind of project. Right. right? Uh, you know, so it was, it was, it was kind of a dialogue, you know, like, um, and it was like that back and forth, a dialogue that I, I think now is becoming somewhat of a, uh, of, of a puzzle or like a luxury these days. And, uh, yeah. And I think emotions also, they bring about, I mean, from those three points that you mentioned, I think that ultimately you want to share emotions. I think we all uh, look for that for people to bring emotions. That's what I'm trying to do with all out coach with this podcast, where I think I, it serves to be a kind of a mentorship for an hour for those people in, in, in a time when mentorship or, coaching is, is, is also a deficit, you know, right. uh, and speaking of emotions, Dave Giles is someone that you know very well. And, uh, he, he, well, the smartest people I ever met. I agree. And in and, an absolutely fact, fantastic human being. Yes. Yes. I, I interviewed him, uh, for my podcast and he defined the selling as a transfer of emotion. Yes. I love transfer right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you can't transfer a feeling you don't have. Yes. That's why it's important that you really believe in the product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you don't believe in the product, then you're not going to transfer the feeling that you really do. Yeah. Um, and I, I tell people, look, if you, people ask me all the time, what should I sell? I said, find out what you believe in and then go sell that. Because <laughs> if right. you believe in it, that's the easiest way to, to determine whether you're going to be successful or not. If you don't believe in it, you ain't going to be successful. I couldn't sell life insurance when I was 22 years old because I didn't believe in it. I could sell the hell out of it today. Yeah. It's 71. Oh yeah. I could sell some. Jerry, you shared many stories, many personal stories candidly. Uh, and I thank you for that. I want to ask you if you can provide some secrets to how you've continued to be personal in this impersonal environment. I think that, I think that I've always been fascinated by people and I've always, and I'm an introvert by nature, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I test on that scale. Actually, I'm called an ambivert because I'm sort of right on the, the, the cusp of introvert and extrovert. But uh, I really, I'm fascinated by people. You know, I was, I was raised uh, in large part by an African-American woman, um, dramatically different than me. And, and um, 
but I was, I was always fascinated by her. She was one of the funniest people I ever met in my life. She'd also whip my butt if I didn't do right. Uh, and, um, and, you know, later in, later on in life, the last nine years of her life, you know, I actually, you know, sent her money every month until she died and I paid for her funeral because she was like my mother. But I was always fascinated with the people that were different than me. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized early on that, um, and I grew up in Memphis, which is not exactly the, you know, capital of uh, racial equality. Uh, I mean, Hicksworth right. King got shot, but I yeah. was raised there. But, you know, I was always raised to believe that everybody was equal. I mean, I actually was taught that by my parents. And, um, yeah. Yeah. and so I, so I always had this fascination with what makes people different. Um, I'm always trying to, to understand what makes people successful. And so I think it's just a, a it's a love of people. Uh, now, you know, I'm not the greatest, greatest socializer in the world because when I go to parties, I'm far more likely to listen than I am to talk because mm -hmm. I know people ain't interested in me. Um, you know, they're more interested in themselves and, and, and that's not a selfish thing. It's just, it's just yeah. how we're wired. Yeah. But I think the key is you got to really, you got to really learn about people. And I, so, you know, if, if I'm a, if I'm a millennial and I have this love for technology, I would try and figure out how do I transfer some of that love to people? Cause I also believe, you know, one of the things I tell my coaches, I actually had this conversation yesterday with the chief commercial officer uh, at a company that we're doing work for that I think their, their culture is problematic. Um, and I actually told him that. And he gave me one of the highest compliments he could ever give me. He said, you know, the thing, I've never had a consultant talk this honestly to me. And I said, well, why would I not tell I said, first place, you're paying me to tell you the truth. Right. That's the first thing. But I said, the reality is uh, you got to love your people. Yeah. Now, you know, one of the things that's important about that is you have to love people for what they are, not for what you wish they were. Yep. And now if you're their coach or you're their mentor, your job is to take them from where they are to where they are capable of becoming. And if you focus as that on as your goal and not on, you know, okay, I'm stuck with these people. Um, I never saw it that way. I, you know, I hired the eight years I was a manager, I hired 20 people. I only hired one I only, I only hired one person with farm experience. Uh, and if I had to force rank those 20 people, he would probably finish number 18. I hired a, f a fourth grade math teacher, had been a math teacher for 10 years. I hired a, a woman who'd been a housewife for 10 years. And all of these people were in the top 8% of the company within two years because I understood that it wasn't who they were. Uh, it was what were their values. Yeah. And if they had the right values, if they had the right work ethic, uh, if they had the right integrity, that's all I really needed. So I just yeah, you're, you're those, fascinated yeah. with people and understand if you understand the three dimensions of human performance too, Tim, one of the things you understand is that every human being on the planet is a function of all of the experience that they've had, both negative and positive, both real and imagined. So if you understand that very simple concept, what you understand is that's why we're all different. We're all different because we've all, my, my brother, who's a year younger than me, had way different experiences in life than I did. And that's why he's who he is. My sister, who's a year older, had way different experiences than I did. Now, we have a tendency to think that because we all lived in the same house for 20 years that we had the same experiences, we didn't. And so they're different. And so what I believe is that if you understand the three dimensions of human performance, 
it makes it easy for you to understand people who think way differently than you. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with them, but you ought to understand them. And I think the biggest problem in America today is we have an intolerance for understanding. Jerry, those comments that that chief commercial officer gave you, I think I shared those wholeheartedly and completely sincerely in terms of you being the speaking the truth. That's how I remember you. That's what makes you memorable for me, Jerry. And that's why this is an honor to have you share uh, your personal stories here with everyone and with me once again. Uh, and that's one of the, I think, the type of uh, personalities that I gravitate towards and who I interview for All Out Coach. Yeah. What they all share. When I, as I reflect, I don't only interview those people who are in the pharmaceutical industry. There are many people who, when I was starting out this All Out Coach, they told me, look, your, your network is the MSLs, medical affairs. Well, I owe a lot of my success, any success that I've had or any relationships that I have, not just to my profession and my background, but also how I perceive the world and my youth right. as well. So that's why, uh, you know, I've had Michelin rated chefs uh, that I've interviewed. Uh, those who have been superintendents of uh, the entire state of Kentucky, you know, in the educational system. Right. So I think uh, what always struck me about you was your ability to integrate all those different aspects of life into work, into business. Your remarks there just make, make me think of also some of my, my background when I was in uh, pharmacy school. You know, I had graduated from Tulane University in the South, right, in New Orleans with a bachelor's in, uh, in biology. Then went to a pharmacy school, Xavier College of Pharmacy, uh, which was a majority African-American school, Catholic school, where I was one of the minorities there. This College of Pharmacy had a, a, a revamped and a strong curriculum amongst all the colleges of pharmacy across the country. The kinds of relationships that I developed there made me think of some of the best accomplishment in my life. It goes back to those years. My classmates who actually uh, who asked me to be the president of the class, even though I wasn't I wasn't, I didn't look like them, right? But they felt, they felt like they had, I was one of them. And right. it was a great honor. I didn't take that. I had a different, uh, you know, different office position that I chose uh, just because at that time uh, I didn't assume those responsibilities. But the, the, just the fact that I was asked uh, for that by somebody who became the president and who I still keep in touch with today, uh, to me is something that, allowed me to connect with people. And that's one of the big visions that I have for All Out Coach, uh, Jerry, is to provide a global perspective, a multicultural perspective with a sports and a science-rooted mindset. Given right. where my background is, I don't need to invent, you know, uh, invent the, the vision or the branding much, you know, for All Out Coach in this podcast. So uh, I just wanted to kind of, comment uh because uh to me that's important and i know that i know that i think i think we share we share those perspectives and, and that's what really inspired me about inviting you here jerry so well i just i think you got to treat everybody like they're important because they are yeah it doesn't matter whether they're you know working at a 7-eleven or yep. whether they're the president of merck right. you got to treat them like they're the the most important person in the world because i don't know of anybody who doesn't you know, who isn't important. None of us are any, I mean, look, we're all the same for God's sakes. You know, I say, I tell people all the time, you, you want to realize just how same we are, go to Disneyland and stand there for two hours and watch people of all nations, all colors, all sizes, all shapes, all paying a hundred bucks to put a smile on a kid's face. Yeah. 
Do you know what that says to me? That says to me, we're all the same. Now we can have different ideas, different views, different ways to approach things, but it doesn't make us bad. It just yeah. makes us have a different opinion. Listen, my daughter and I, you know, we have way different opinions about things. Do yeah. I stop loving her? No, I don't care what she thinks. She don't care what I think. And we'll fuss and fight about it. And we'll argue about it, you know, but you can't stop loving somebody because they, but I think you got to love everybody. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think you, I'm, not, I'm talking about dating them, but I'm talking about you got to really love people. Yeah. And I, I, I have a huge soft spot for, uh, for, for women who are single mothers. I have a huge soft spot for people that are paying for their own education. Um, and, you know, I think you gotta, you gotta, you gotta try and make a contribution in this, in this world. And one of the ways that you can do it is by actually helping some of these people. Yeah, Jerry. And I think that the uh, most pure form of existence is uh, in childhood and we adults forget that. And if we yes. observe other children, our own children, they're not uh, born to single out differences among people no. matter about their color or what they believe. And in our adults, in adulthood, we need to stay as close as we are to children. And, you know, my daughter, she had an assignment recently where she, she, she needed to come up with some kind of slogan. And uh, I kind of helped her out with something because I had thought about it as well for all our coach and for my, you know, friends. Uh, you are as big as you make other people feel like that's the slogan that she came up with, that we came up That's with. That's awesome. Jerry, you've helped many become champions in life. You've been a champion in pharma, outside of pharma. How do you define being a champion? And how do you teach people to become? What, what does champion, being a champion mean these days? You know, Frank Martin, who's the basketball coach at the University of South Carolina, um, who's a very good friend of somebody that I mentor, he played, his team played the final four when he wasn't expected to get there. And they lost in the first round. Uh, the, uh, they lost in the, the game that would lead up to, if they'd won that, they would have gone to the national championship. And I will never forget what he said when he came out of the locker room, he was interviewed after losing. He said, and they asked him, what did you tell your team? He said, you don't have to win the game to be a champion. And I thought that was one of the most profound things I ever heard because Champions are not the people who win the Super Bowl uh, or win the U.S. Open or, you know, win the lottery. I mean, those are, those are people that have earned their way to a high degree of success. I think what determines a champion is someone who gets the maximum out of their ability and, and is happy with what they get. You know, people ask me all the time, who's the most successful person you ever met? And I say, my ex-father-in-law. Now my ex-father-in-law um, never made more than $10 an hour. I did his income tax. You know, last year he worked, he made $10,000. Um, he lived to be 94. But the thing that was to me magnificent about him is he, he never wanted anything but what he had. He loved his garden, he loved cutting the grass, he loved his family. And I say, you know, life is not, the successful people in life, the champions in life are not people who uh, get what they want, they're people who want what they get. And they're, they're satisfied with that because they're not looking to climb some, I mean, look, as successful as any, anybody is, am I ever gonna have more money than Jeff Bezos? 
the other thing is, you know, I sit back and say, you know, as, you know, whatever success I've had, I could, you know, what are the things that I can't do because of money? And the answer is not very many. I mean, I couldn't buy a major sports team, but I would one on one anyway. But I think the way champions are built is based on their effort, their attitude, and their habits. Yeah. If you have the right attitude and you have the right habits and you put forth the effort, you'll be a champion. And you can be seventh out of eighth and still be a champion. Because what you've done is you have maximized your potential, whatever that is. And you, by the way, you see this a lot in Special Olympics. Mm-hmm. You see, you're talking about yeah. champions. Or you see lots of champions in Special Olympics. Um, so I think that I think I think people think off far too often of champions as people with extraordinary success. I think it's ordinary people doing extraordinary things because they have the right attitude, the right effort, um, and um, uh, you know, and 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 they're happy with what they get. Yeah. Now, have you ever? had to change your mind about someone you coach, for example, and you may have been surprised by their capabilities or by their behavior. And how did you change your approach in terms of how they visualize their own success? Maybe they didn't think they were going to, you know, be that champion. And maybe you didn't think that either in the beginning, but then did you have to change your mind? How did you, how do you change your approach as a coach? It only happened to me once. Yeah. And I, I had the number one sales rep in the country and he left become a manager. And so I hired him. And when I hired him, I made the decision that his replacement would never be as good as him. Uh I made that decision. And after two years, he wasn't. And one day I remember sitting down saying, what's, what's his problem? And I realized his problem was me. He will never exceed my expectations. Mm -hmm. Never. So I had to change my expectations. I had to communicate to him that he had way more potential than I had earlier realized and that my expectation was that he was going to go from here to here because he had that potential. And he did. And he wound up not number one in the country, but in the top 50, which was the top 8%. And so none of that would have happened if I hadn't changed my view of how I saw him. Yeah. It's an incredibly important point uh, for everyone who's listening. Yeah, thank you, Jerry. One last question. What is one message that you have to those who would listen in terms of how they can stay personal and how they can stay energetic in this impersonal reality and any other message that you may have? I'd love you for you to share. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, a couple of things. One is I think you really have to, you have to, you have to study human behavior. You have to study human behavior and read books like um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. You should be required reading for everybody. Read Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. Read Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Uh, read books, uh, read uh, um, the, hum- the Human Side of Enterprise by Douglas McGregor. And, and really get intimate with what make, read the, the, the Change Monster by Jeannie Duck. All of these things will give you insight into who human beings are, and it'll open your mind to why and how people are different and how to interact with them. The second thing is to have a, a, an unquenchable thirst for knowledge. I mean, I've read since 1981, 590 
business books. I read one book 93 times. Um, Which one is I that? May I ask you, Jerry? Which one is that? Which book? Psycho-Cybernetics. Oh, Psycho-Cybernetics. Okay. Um, I still read 25 books a year. And right now I'm reading a book called The, the Lost Art of Listening. Uh, I just finished a terrific book called The Go-Giver. A terrific book. Um, I read 25 books a year. I've already read 585. Um, I do two book summaries a week. Um, and so I think being an incessant learner, one of the things that I learned, you know, when I first started in pharma, I was the, I was, there were two nurses and, and one doctor in my class, you know, of reps, there were 29 of us. And I remember going there saying, you know, the last bios, the, the last science course I had was a chemistry class at VMI. And they actually put your grades on the door, uh -huh. Gerald Acuff. And uh -huh. my grade was a D minus minus. Now I made the assumption that he was trying to tell me something. And so you can imagine when I went to that training school with a degree in English, that I was scared to death that I was going to get left behind. Um, so I studied night and day because I knew that my, you know, I had this huge opportunity and I didn't want to blow it because I didn't know what I was doing. And I finished number one out of 29. Uh, and obviously, you know, 16 years later, I was running a company, but I think knowledge is, is the acquisition and utilization of knowledge is a critical skill for anybody who wants to be great at anything. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Uh, I think, uh, uh, I think we need to really take those comments to heart. Uh, and uh, we need to find creative ways in which we can find time to read those books. I know I personally am a, I've traditionally been a very slow reader, but I get energized again and inspired by those books, by but coaches like yourself. The technology, Tim, has made it so you don't have to read books anymore. Yes, yes. You can read the book summaries or you can listen to podcasts or you can, uh, you know, just follow people on Twitter or follow people on LinkedIn you you can you can get the same quantity of ideas with far less effort because of technology. Yeah. If this yeah. Technology. First place, I, I read the book summary before I buy the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so if I if I like the book, and about ten percent of the books I actually buy. I see. Um, and so, uh, but I mean, I read the book summary first. Now I'm getting tons of ideas from the book summaries, and yep. the book summaries take twelve minutes. Right. So I can do two book summaries a week in twenty five minutes. Yeah, what I, what I wanted to suggest and what I often suggest to others is to consider MentorBox. MentorBox yeah. is a subscription. You're familiar with it, right? No, I have it. I oh. use it once a week. Oh, you too. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Yes. Yes. So MentorBox, great summaries from CEOs of the book, books. Yeah, for those who don't have time. And I listen to those and then I follow sim similar actually uh, yeah. you know, process. But, yeah. but you're doing the same thing I am. You're using technology yes. to get those ideas. Yes. My thing is I don't care where you get them. It's a lot easier get them from technology yeah 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 so it exposes it, it increases our exposure it doesn't make us smarter but it increases our exposure in terms of yeah. relationships i think and and uh, and the information so, but it also gives you it also gives you ideas mm -hmm. and you know the, the the foundation of all success are new ideas i think you shared so many great insights jerry thank you so much i uh, i'm as i mentioned I, i'm always refreshed and energized and I leave inspired after speaking to you thinking about the future and I hope those that will listen to this podcast will also think a little bit differently be empowered be energetic be excited about what the future has in store for us so uh, thank you very much Jerry uh, thanks Tim thanks for having me bud thank you a pleasure